Welcome back to Sandcast Beach Volleyball with Triborn and Travis Mawarda, presented by Marriott Vacation Club Rentals and brought to you by VolleyballMag.com. We are here for part two of our interview with the Canadian Sams. That would be Sam Pedlow, the blocker, and Sam Schachter, the defender. I want to give you guys just a, a quick recap for those of you who missed or just did not follow along for the five-star major in Fort Lauderdale. Phil Dahlhauser and Nick Lucena just ran train, didn't drop a single set. They beat Daniele Lupo and Paolo Nicolai of Italy, the silver medals from 2016. They beat them in the finals. Samoylovs and Smedins of, Lav- of Latvia took the bronze, beating Pedro and George of Brazil. Our Canadian friends, Sam Pedlo and Sam Schachter, got a nice top 10 finish. They finished ninth, and they are on their way, along with most of the world's top teams, to uh, Doha next week uh, for a four-star event. On the women's side for the U.S., Summer Ross and Brooke Sweat took a bronze, while Kelly Clays and Sarah Hughes, as well as Nicole Branning and Lauren Fendrick, also recorded top 10 finishes. So just wanted to give you guys a quick recap there uh, and enjoy part two with the Sams. Is there any value in training in California in December? Sure, but you know, what advantage, like how much of an advantage is it? Um, you know, the last two years we've gone and extended training camps and, and that's kind of our pseudo moving to California is we come down here for two and a half, three weeks train, um, and hit it hard. And then hopefully we're outside playing FIVBs by that point. So, you know, I would love to live in California, but you know, 30 years of life is, is keeping me in Toronto. And, and I, I like living in Toronto. And yes, my wife has a job in Toronto, so I would have to pick her up and, and move here, her here. And something to think about as well is we're not home very often. So, you know, I think living in California would be fantastic. But, you know, in her career, it might not be the best move. So in, in that situation, it makes sense for us to live in Toronto because she has a stable job and she's very good at it. So, to move, you know, even as a physiotherapist to, to move down to, to California or the States and start work, I would have to redo all my certifications uh, and do the United States national exam. She would have to come down and write the bar, I'm assuming here in, in the States. So it's tricky. It's, I think everyone sees it as kind of the dream to be able to do that, but personal circumstances always make it a little sticky. And on top of that, I think that for the first month that we get back in the sand anyways like 90% of the stuff we do is technical work and we don't really need to be outside for that. Like the gameplay stuff for sure. Beneficial to be outside indoors is actually tougher because we have in our facility, incredibly deep sand. Uh, when there's no wind, the it's impossible to pass float serves. I don't know if you guys have ever played an indoor tournament. I know you guys are like 99% well, a outside. Lot of, a lot of people have said that because we were just asking them about their preparation for the Hague and they said that indoor float serves are harder to pass. And like my mind can't wrap itself around that. Why do you think that is? Like what, well, what the, makes it move different? The air pockets. It's, it's still air. And then when you throw a knuckleball, for instance, in baseball in a windy stadium, the knuckleball will just tail and it will move and it's, it's predictable. It won't have that true knuckle effect Hmm. when you're indoors, there's no wind. So it actually can knuckle, it can drop, it can rise, it can shake right in front of you. And, um, so the wind will pull it like in one, in one true direction. direction. So it takes away that knuckle effect. So if you want to work on, you know, moving your feet right up into the last moment that you pass indoors for sure is the best for that. 
And, you know, as a spin server, indoors is tough for me because it's a good opportunity for me to work on my spin serve because the toss is going to be in a consistent spot the whole time. So a serve from five to five is always going to be a serve from five to five. But when you're playing another team, they're more likely to pass that ball successfully than they would be a float serve from five to five. So I think you'll notice if you look at the Hags results over the last two years, the team that you thought might win necessarily didn't necessarily do particularly well um i know the brazilians some of those teams that are outside all the time and have never played in an indoor facility if you watch game tape it's it's scrappy volleyball because it's very challenging to pass a surf because it will move meters at a time and not necessarily go the same direction and then move a little bit it could start on your right and end up way on your left so that's the challenge with an indoor facility i think the longer that we play and the more often that we have to do this indoor to outside transition the the better we get at making that transition like this year was by far the easiest year like i already feel pretty comfortable being outside yeah we might not get like the gale force winds days that we we have to learn how to play wind ball and that will be a challenge Can the first you bring couple in big times. fans we were actually talking about that. It's funny that you say that. Um, our national team is sponsored by Lululemon, and we were trying to, I mean, kind of more joking around than anything, but getting one of those massive wall fans and just kind of having a true side wind day and then get the sprinklers out and then have a rain day. Oh, nice. <laughs> but uh, we'll see. That's probably going to be a little outside of the budget. Check with the building's insurance code. Yeah. The Lulu, the giant Lulu fan. Yeah. Let's turn Lulu on. In the past couple years internationally, I feel like we've seen a lot of teams start to go away from the traditional big little format. Like we see the the Polish guys are almost, well, I know that Cantor is a little bit taller, but two relatively big guys. And then we have the Latvians with the opposite. They're both relatively small. And you guys, the defender is taller than the blocker. Yes. Right? Six, and six, and six, the defender jumps double, way six, higher than the ball. <laughs> so, I mean, how did yeah, you... True. It's funny to me that, that Schachter, you are the defender at 6'6", six, six, and according to Pedlo, with a higher vertical. Well, you're listed at 6'6", six, six on BBB. That's a little bit of an exaggeration. <laughs> leave it at that. So it's how do you think that plays factor? to your advantage just being able... I mean, that's a very physical team, or at least the ability to be physical, just being so much bigger on average than most teams you'll see. Yeah, well, I mean... I don't know. I used to be a block when I, when I was junior, I started off as a blocker and then I actually made the transition to defender because my coach said I wasn't tall enough. He wasn't, I wasn't big enough to be an international level blocker. And you can see there's examples all over the place of exceptions to that rule. And I mean, Pedlo is the prime example of that as one of the, I think the, one of the best blockers in the world. Six, five. And, at yeah. six five and true six five. <laughs> Me too. I'm six six, but I'm right, a true six five. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I mean, there's there's a whole different set of benefits that come with smaller blockers or small, like not like the six ten typical monster, and that's that they're disguised. They're tougher to see for the attacker. Uh, they can delay their timing, change their timing very easily. And um, we we customize our defense to cater towards his size and my size, right? So um, there's there's always ways around this quote unquote problem that isn't really a problem. And I think it's it's interesting. You know, you have like if you look at uh, Robin, he's also for Austria a smaller blocker, but he's got exceptional ball control and he's a really good heads up player. So he does really well. And then Zandi, his defender, was was very small, but he had a, a good FIVB 
I won't say career because he's still playing, but he had a good run and he's still trying to do it um, with a different partner now. But he's, I think they have at least two FIVB medals in recent memory, one in China and then Qatar. They ended up playing Rangiri and Krembla in the final and, and, and they went off. So I think there's, you know, I, our game definitely is migrating towards these huge blockers. Um, and then the defenders keep getting bigger as well. But, you know, some of those teams that have stuck around are, are you know, equal size. Like you look at uh, the Spanish guys, they're both around the same size and they play a style of game that works for them. You know, I can't be Ryan. I can't be Phil. Those, that's big, big man volleyball. I have to kind of be a mix between, uh, you know, a shooty guy and, and a physical guy. And I think we've done a good job of, of adapting, you know, big man components to our game and, and little man game or components to our game. And I think that's why we have success. Yeah. And I, I don't even really think that I'm that big of a defender anymore. I mean, you look at the Dutch guys, you look at all like came is taller than I, both of us. Yeah. I mean, he, like there are a lot of big defenders popping up all over the world. And even those who are shorter really aren't that much shorter. And they sky like, look at Bruno. Bruno probably almost touches as high as I do. And the guy is like three or four inches shorter than I am. So, I mean, there. The thing is, is yes, the game 100% is migrating towards bigger players, bigger athletes, because it's just... Every sport is. Yeah, your ceiling for talent becomes way more, way higher. But, like, the thing with, with those types of players is it might take a little longer to develop them in the early stages until they figure out their coordination. Or, you know, when you, when you have a six 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 seven player... They're probably not like their coaches on the junior level probably aren't looking at them and going, you're a defender. They're probably going to try and place them in the blocking position. So, I mean, it's going to take a while for for people to start identifying these monsters and putting them on defense. But I mean, you look at a team like even Andre and Avandro, both clearly true blockers, but they they're actually so skilled that. Yeah, you can throw one of those guys in the back row and they'll get the job done. Okay, they're not Nick back there, but mm-hmm. they're good. Well, what do you guys think about um, split blocking? Because there's only like one team or two teams out there that do it. Latvia, Spain, a few teams maybe yeah. dabble with it when they need it, but there's not many true split blocking teams. Yeah, I mean, each have their, like, split blocking teams have their own benefits, like, the one guy, if he gets hot in a certain position, you just leave him there. So if the defender's getting a ton of digs, you just, you know, the one guy goes up mm-hmm. to block every time the one guy defends. And uh, there's an endurance component, for sure, where it's like you're not having to run up to the net every single time if you're in super hot conditions. So Yeah, one guy might be burnt out. Like, I felt like it all the time, <laughs> where I'm jump serving and blocking full time. And it would have been nice to be like, hey, buddy, go up. Want to go up yep. for me a few? <laughs> John Hyden's like, I'm 43. You can run your ass to the net. <laughs> See, I think most defenders at that point would say, yeah, I'll go to the net because I'm a better blocker than you. I think every defender thinks that blocking is easy and every blocker thinks that, yeah, defending is yeah, not totally. really that hey, let hard. me take a break in the backcourt here. Yeah, so, you know, would <laughs> Sam and I ever split block? Yeah, in practice. Mm-hmm. And then about two points in, we realize that I'm not going to touch anything, but he's probably going to get a couple blocks. So <laughs> I, so every time I miss a block, I just turn around and uh, see if he thinks he could get that one. But <laughs> I think, it, it, yeah, it's an interesting concept. And I think if you can do it, um, 
it's great, but it's one of those strategies. Some teams have a monster. They're never going to put that guy in the backcourt. If you have two equal-sized guys who have good ball control and they both have dynamic hands at the net, it makes perfect sense to send one guy up sometimes and, and the other guy up other times. You might get a completely different look as well. Um, so I think you just need to pick a strategy that works best for whatever style of player you are. And I think that's a beautiful part of our game is no two teams are really perfectly alike everyone has their own strategies their own uh quirky plays and and that's what makes them successful well i mean split blocking speaks to the adaptability of teams right i mean if you can show teams a different look if things aren't working for you that's a huge advantage i mean josh was our primary blocker Mm -hmm. but he was a defender at the olympics and i blocked when i was a junior i mean there was times at, at the end of the game where we weren't getting a sniff and he would just send me up and we'd just score a couple points just because it was a foreign look. It was an exotic play without having to do an exotic play. And a different look for you, right? It's almost right. like calling a timeout. Like just yeah, let's just shift our flip, mental yeah, right here. Switch, exactly. I think it should be noted I never played defense. <laughs> <laughs> I'm you, uh, that being said, Schachter is blocking this year and I am playing defense. <laughs> Tune in. <laughs> Check out the Instagram. Yeah, maybe that top ten thing isn't happening after all. <laughs> Now, you guys have described your team as one-and-done volleyball because is that just for side-out efficiency or just that, you know, you're not one of those teams that's just going to, like, dig a bazillion balls and just kind of, like, patty-cake it around and wear other teams out? I mean, yeah, a little bit of uh, that for sure. I think that we we consider ourselves, like, a highly efficient side-out team, whereas, like, when we attack the ball, we're either going to get it or they're going to get us. But... um, it, it speaks to our aggressiveness. When we go up there, we're not looking to kind of chip around and have long rallies. I mean, we can get into that and we'll be probably okay. We do our conditioning, but um, we're like, I'm, I'm a 6'5", six, 6'6", six, six defender. If he puts me off the net, the point, we're not necessarily still losing that point. Like, I still have a chance to put that ball away. And Sam is such a big, aggressive attacker that he is so tough to get a clean stop unless he gets blocked like he's not getting dug that often and even if he is it's not a controlled dig so it's really tough to convert so a lot of our side out does end up being that one and done style of volleyball and i think as the game's getting bigger that is what beach volleyball is becoming um if you look at the Dutchies in 2015 when they won the world championships, the, the stat I always heard thrown around was they sided out at something like 80% efficiency. If you side out at that level and you have a serve, you're going to win games. So like, how could you describe that style? One and done. Like, you, that you serve them the ball and they're either going to side it out or they might get aced. Uh, but you're not going to ace them very often. And if you don't ace them very often, they're going to win the game. So I think that's, you know, that's used to describe us. If you don't serve us with pressure, we'll side out. But that's the expectation at the highest level in the world is that if you don't put a team under pressure, you might as well just give them a free ball. Um, and as the game continues to get taller and taller and taller, uh, that, that's what we're in. You got to get your two points and then you have to hold those two points or increase the gap. And, and then you're going to win the game. I mean, you look at the tall, the, those big dominant players like like Phil and Evandros on side out. Like when when you think about those guys and their side out, you don't think multiple long rallies. No, you think I'm gonna get you and I'll score the point, or you're just gonna put it in the in the sand. So it's it. not it's not extended rallies. Not our jam. I don't I don't think we want. <laughs> we, I don't think we want to be known as like the long rally guys. 
we've we've talked a lot about some of the top international teams. And I'm really curious to get a non-American point of view. Is who do you think right now is the best team in the world? That's you a, are welcome to say yourself. Question. Yeah, that's a. Yeah, that's a really tricky question. If you had to put your money on it going into every tournament, where do you put your money? Can I? I'm going to go with. Th- I'm going to be that guy and go with three. Okay. Um, <laughs> Evandro Andre are so hot right now that if they can continue to ride the wave, they're going to be a team that is tough to beat. That being said, a dip in the wave and their side out efficiency goes down. They're not a super strong defending team. Or if Evandro's not serving super aggressively, again, they're not a super challenging team. We played them in the Hague, and we took them in two without a a ton of problems because we were just able to pass the serve and slow down their attack efficiency. Um, We played them in Gestad again in a battle, and uh, it it was a similar situation. Unfortunately, we lost that one. But um, if they can keep that mental momentum going, then they're Mm -hmm. a good team. They're in the final, I think, against Alisson and Bruno today in the Brazilian Tour event. I think Nick and Phil are, are always going to be strong, um, particularly, you know, in the important events, the big events, the five stars, they always seem to do well. And, you know, they didn't do as well as I think they wanted to at the World Championships, but then they came and won the World Tour Finals. So interested to see what they do in the first tournament of the year. Um, and then the third one, like I think Lehman and Krasilnikov are one of those teams that as Lehman continues to get more reps on the beach um, and continues to train for more seasons, he's just going to smooth out. Um, and then I'm going to put us in as the dark horse. As number like four, um, we're going to slide in there. Um, because I think leading up to last year, we didn't even have an off-season together. So back to the Cuba tournament, or the tournament in Trinidad and Tobago, the Continental Finals, when we played Cuba in the, in the final... I had to send Sam to the net because I didn't know what he was telling me to block. So I would send him to the net and get him to put the call behind his back so I could watch what he was doing full well knowing I wasn't going to make the dig because I had no idea what he was doing at the net. But at least then I knew what I was supposed to block. We were in the honeymoon (laughs) stage, so I didn't want to tell him I had no idea what was going on. Um, But it it worked out. But now that we've had a full off-season of training together and a full season together... Um, we were able to sit back and say, hey, what do we need to work on? Like, what are those, you know, those, those key areas that we can make a 5% improvement on? Because, you know, at this level, you're not, you're not making huge strides every offseason. You want to fix that one part of your game, that two parts of your game. So I think we've done that. And I'm super excited to get out there and, and start competing against those, those top-level teams. So I know that, that we can be right there. Yeah, Josh and I had a super complicated defense that we had to simplify when I started playing. <laughs> we had about like 12 defensive variations, three three variations of each variation. It was insane. You're listening to Sandcast, Beach Volleyball with Triborn and Travis Mawerder, presented by Marriott Vacation Club Rentals and brought to you by VolleyballMag.com. VolleyballMag.com is your daily digital news source for all things volleyball, from NCAA women and men to beach volleyball on all levels to international and more. VolleyballMag.com, the only media outlet that covers our sport on all fronts every day. This podcast is also brought to you by Marriott Vacation Club Rentals, which offers the best vacation accommodations in the world's best vacation destinations. Wherever you travel, Florida to Fort Lauderdale for the first major in February or to the Outrigger Canoe Club in Hawaii, (laughs) you're up to California. Choose to rest now luxurious guest rooms, suites, or villas for your next getaway. Villas offer all the comforts of home, including a full kitchen, living and dining area, and separate bedrooms. Stay with the Marriott name you know and trust. Book big spaces and great places today 
visit www.mvcrentals.com. But uh, back to the original question, the only team I'm going to throw in there that I think when they're hot are like one of the toughest teams to play against in the world is Nikolai Lupo. Mm-hmm. I think just from a physicality standpoint, if Nikolai gets hot, he's just, he's like a, another Phil. And then Lupo yeah. back there is just so crafty. It, the juxtaposition of their styles makes them so tough because yeah. they like they're, they can kind of match up against anyone. Like if you want to, if, if they're facing a big banger, you know, Nikolai can just go and block the guy. If yeah. they're facing a shooter, Lupo can do all sorts of tricks in the back row. And I mean, even their offensive styles are totally different. So even though they might have maybe matchup issues and teams can specialize against whatever choice they want. I mean, Nikolai's kind of an unservable guy though. Mm-hmm. He's kind of like Phil. I mean, no matter who you put beside Phil, you're probably not serving Phil. You're going to serve that guy. Right. So, I mean, other than that, I, I actually agree with everything Sam said. I, Evandro and Andre, if they keep the trajectory that I think they're on, yeah, they're, they're going to be super tough because they're just such a clean side-out team, and then they've got serving weapons, plus they've got good blocker. I think their defense is obviously, like, their defender defense is a little weaker than, the, you know, some other World Tour teams, but they overcompensate with such a big blocker. Like, even if you have Andre in the back row, well, your blocker is, like, what is it, 6'11"? Like, the guy's enormous. You can yeah, walk yeah. to that line shot. Like, you don't even need to chase. So, um, yeah, I think... That, and then Phil and Nick, obviously, are always tough. I think the consistency, maybe, issues that they had a little last year, like, are going to pan out once they kind of bared... I mean, it's the first first year mm-hmm. of an Olympic cycle. I'll just chalk that up to that because those guys can be... Well, even as he's saying that, you know, you're, I'm, I'm thinking of teams that I've yeah. forgotten. Like, yeah. Kentor Loziak. Oh, like yeah. those guys have been hot, yeah, and then you think guys. of like oh, how about okay. the what happened about gold medalists? Yeah. What happened to Samon and Alvaro? And then what happened to Allison and Bruno? It's like <laughs> all, I think that's a testament to the men's game. It's like who who is going to be the number one men's team? I think you could argue twelve teams that yeah. could potentially take that. And that's what's so hard. <laughs> I know I'm choking up right now. Um, I think that's what's that's a good thing for our sport is that it's so deep. It just makes our job so hard, right? Because every week there's no quote unquote like good matchup anymore. You know, yeah. sometimes you used to sneak your way into a semifinal or a final because you got a good draw. Well, you're mm-hmm. gonna have to battle your way to the final of every men's tournament now, um, and, and it's great for our sport. But yeah, like you said, I don't think you could. I think you could argue that. Uh, a, a ton of teams could be in that top three situation. I think our sport is, and and I've asked plenty of top players this, including like Phil, who's been around for years now. Our sport is, on both the men and women's side, it's as good as it's ever been. The talent on the world tour is just ridiculous right now, which is kind of why it, it, I don't know, it kind of depresses me that that the world tour situation with this, it's it's in a transition. I understand that, but just the payout right now and how it's kind of gone down over the last four years, but the quality of volleyball and like the players are putting out a better product right now, but the tours, in my opinion, aren't paying us for that that, or a reflection of that. Yeah. I don't know. That's how I feel. You're listening to Sandcast Beach Volleyball with Triborn and Travis Mawerder, presented by Marriott Vacation Club Rentals and brought to you by VolleyballMag.com. VolleyballMag.com is your daily digital news source for all things volleyball, from NCAA women and men to beach volleyball on all levels to international and more. VolleyballMag.com, the only media outlet that covers our sport on all fronts every day. 
This podcast is also brought to you by Marriott Vacation Club Rentals, which offers the best vacation accommodations in the world's best vacation destinations. Wherever you travel, Florida to Fort Lauderdale for the first major in February or to the Outrigger Canoe Club in Hawaii. <laughs> You're up to California. Choose to rest now luxurious guest rooms, suites, or villas for your next getaway. Villas offer all the comforts of home, including a full kitchen, living and dining area, and separate bedrooms. Stay with the Marriott name you know and trust. Book big spaces and great places today. Visit www.mvcrentals.com. I think it's, you know, the five-star, four-star system down to the one-stars and, and the changing the points and the changing the money and the changing the ranking and, and the Olympic qualification. Those are challenges, and, and I think they're trying to make strides in the right direction of our sport. But it's tough for us to even figure out the system and, and how to effectively be involved in that system. And, and I think that's a, that's a real challenge on a larger scale than just us as athletes. We want to go out there and we want to play the best volleyball we can and deliver the best product we can. But to be constantly having to think about how to most effectively play the system is tough. It was really easy when it was grand slams and opens because you know you got to peak for those grand slams. You might be able to take some opens off, but now you don't really know. And now with multiple tournaments on multiple weekends, I think that fractures our sport a little bit instead of keeps it super consistent. So, you know, the changes they're making, sometimes they're not even letting them happen long enough to see how it affects more than a, a year because we all know everything takes longer than a year in the FIVB, right? Our results from last year still count for this year, but this year's different than last. And I think the more, the better the, I don't know, for example, if I'm in the NBA and I'm getting paid like these guys, I'll gladly go in at two in the morning into the gym and get reps like a guy like Kobe would. I mean, he's the best, the best, but a lot of these guys, they're doing like four days. They got their trainers and they got balls set up and physio and everything. But in our sport, it's like, yeah, I mean, I could do that. And if I made a million dollars a year, I would probably hire like two or three coaches and have these guys that the Brazilians have. But most of us can't act like these elite world-class professional athletes because we're not, we don't have the resources or the funds to do it. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, it's like we all train for this one massive event, the Olympics, and we can't even make money on the Olympics. Yeah, you know? exactly. it's like we're all training for <laughs> this, this event we Super can't Bowl. even make money for. So it's like we're, we're so reliant on, on just the passion mm-hmm. to, to be our driver. I, I mean, if we're certainly not like I didn't choose beach volleyball because of the money in the sport, you know, there's like there's nothing. There's, it's so hard. Our well, lifestyle like, is badass, though. <laughs> yeah. But I think, you know, as you bring the NBA, an important consideration is imagine they went up to the Lakers and they said, hey, listen, we're going to add 25 extra games to your season and we're going to start January 4th. Right. They wouldn't have that, yeah. right? But we don't have that same level of, of pull. Our season now has been extended greatly. It's almost doubled, right? But we just have to do it because right. that's how you make the Olympics. Yeah. <laughs> and we want to do our best getting the word out on you guys as well. So where can our American listeners find you guys on social media and reach out to you guys? Sam times two. Yeah, just go on Casey Patterson's stories. <laughs> uh, Monday and Friday, uh, we train with them. So no, uh, yeah, social media is the easiest way to find us. We actually just started a team page since we got down here. So that's in the works called Ooh. S times two beach volleyball. Uh, and you can always find my handle. It's just at Pedlo Samuel. At Sam Schachter. 
All right. We will uh, we'll definitely link to both of those in the show notes. Now, is there anything that you guys want to talk about before we got to go? Anything that you wish we would have asked Message you? Message to your Canadians? Yeah. Sam's new tattoo looks badass. It does look yeah, good. It does. You got some good ink. Well, we'll throw Thanks, a picture babe. up for you guys. Yeah. Well, Ooh, multiple tattoos. I got a couple. Yeah, I get one every off season because you can't really get them during the year because they're going to rub off in the sand and uh, and not be as clean. So if anyone's looking to get a tattoo that is an outdoors person, get it done in the winter because <laughs> you're not suntanning in the winter, so mm-hmm. your tattoo will turn out better. Um, but yeah, I don't know if there's any Canadian um, youth volleyball players out there listening. I don't know if they've they've found the sand cast yet. I just I think it's important to continue to encourage uh, the Canadian youth to play volleyball, whether it be beach volleyball or indoor volleyball, especially on the men's side. Um, I think we're starting to see a decrease in the number of athletes that are uh, are playing the sport because maybe they think it's uncool. I know when I was growing up, I wasn't. Um, kind of praised for being a volleyball player. I was more made fun of for being a volleyball player. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping that we can play a small part in, in changing that. Um, because you guys are in fights, right? Like hockey. You guys start punching each other's <laughs> teeth down. So I, I played fairly high-level hockey, and I, and I quit hockey to play volleyball. And I remember uh, leaving a hockey playoff game to go to a volleyball game and crying in the car because like, I felt like I was disappointing everybody because I was no longer playing hockey. Um, but in order for our sport to continue to survive, we need people to eventually replace us. And I want you to replace me. I want to get to a point where people are starting to beat me. And I'm like, the program is going in the right direction because we have people filling in. And I think that's one of the challenges in Canadian volleyball is the longevity of can we continue? Our program has been on the rise for the last five years. We need to keep that momentum going and we need people to fill in for us when when we ultimately want to retire so if there's anyone out there listening uh and if you don't think volleyball is cool just check our instagram because it's <laughs> super cool um but yeah don't ever be afraid to reach out we're more accessible now as athletes than we have been at any other point in in history you can just go online and probably find five ways to contact one of us so you know continue to play the sport and and help continue to build volleyball in canada yeah, man, I said it all. I can't really follow that. <laughs> but like not just grassroots in Toronto or Vancouver, which are the main hubs in Canada. It's like we need more disbursement. Like we need people starting to play from all over the place. Don't I get don't be afraid to get your toes sandy. It's like the sport is so unbelievable. And it's because you don't have to be the biggest and the strongest. Maybe like you wouldn't indoor. Like you, it's so much of a mental game where you have to be smart and strategy and there's no coach. So you get that independence factor and the girls are beautiful guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, just speaking of the women, I think NCAA, sand, is it called sand volleyball? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so they couldn't call it beach volleyball because Not beach volleyball beach. had, well, it was beach volleyball has like a drinking connotation to it. <laughs> what? So they called it sand volleyball because <laughs> beach volleyball has such like a party vibe reputation to it that's so what they called it, it so sand. awesome bro <laughs> that's the best but i think that that the evolution of sand volleyball for women on the ncaa level has really helped our women's program because now we're starting to see people who've graduated from going in the first year for sand volleyball now they're done and now they're starting to fill in with our national team which is awesome it just means everything's backed up by about four years but that kind of evolution has started to kind of even itself out, which is great. We don't necessarily have that with the men. Um, 
our women's program is going to be strong for a long time because of that. But we just need we need boys to start playing more volleyball. Yeah, I coach at home. Like that's what I do as my work outside of volleyball, and like it's pretty much. 95% girl athletes, yeah. female athletes that, that come and get coached by me. And as awesome as that is, and I think that's a product of the NCAA scholarships that are up for grabs and girls wanting to go and learn in the States where it's like the main hubs like California and Florida and things like that. But um, yeah, we need more, we need more fellows out there. I think that the grassroots, pro, the grassroots program in Canada definitely needs some work. I think the national team is starting to become a little more organized, which will facilitate that, but it's definitely not where it can or needs to be. Think about it, boys. There's 95 girls to every five boys in the gym. That's crazy. It's- and, and this is <laughs> good odds. I like <laughs> this is a topic for a, a whole separate podcast for you guys. But how the NCAA women's system will affect you know USAV, like Ooh. your national team. You know you have Kelly and Sarah coming out right now as the standout from the collegiate system, who kind of broke through immediately on the FIVB. They just kind of went straight from college to ranked in the top twelve in the world or something crazy like that. Um, and they're they're doing it by all accounts. They are professional beach volleyball players, like one or two seasons out. And as the collegiate system continues to evolve, I feel like they're going to start pumping out really good teams all the time. So, I mean, that's great for your development program, but I think it makes it super interesting in the lead up to not necessarily Tokyo, but 2024, 2028. Like we, we don't know who those teams could be and there could just be a breakout team immediately that, you know, all of a sudden they're Olympic medal contenders. Totally. I love that as a new podcast theme. We're going to have to bring that one up. The evolution of NCAA women's volleyball and its effect <laughs> on our national team. We'll bring some NCAA guests there in. There you go. Yeah, for sure. It's been fun to see the college ranks break out onto the AVP because it, it shook a lot of things up on the AVP last year, just these girls coming out that not a whole lot of people, if they didn't follow the college game, you know, they didn't know necessarily know who they were, and mm-hmm. they were taking like sevenths and fifths. And it was like, where'd these girls come from? Yeah. And you're seeing the development from the high school, and now more high school girls are playing beach volleyball because they have the opportunity to go to college for free in some cases so it's been an awesome development um and it's been awesome to see you guys rise through the ranks and we appreciate you guys coming on sandcast with us while you're here in your precious california time no we appreciate you you guys having us out it's always great to uh you know see some familiar faces and, and and talk shop and you know get out here and play some volleyball and yeah, these for sure. snacks in front of me are delicious. Yeah, <laughs> I've been uh, wanting Trisket. I've been dying not to. You guys dying not to eat, but we're about over. The right? Next evolution of the podcast is you guys snack sponsor. Hey, what does a that sound like sponsor. on the mic? How's our producer, producer guy Brad, is loving the sound of that? Yep. <laughs> we appreciate you guys listening as always. <laughs> we will catch you guys next week on Sandcast.